BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Mic check, check one, check two. Are we here? All right, we're here right now. Ish. Peace, 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 and prosperity. Welcome to Right Now-ish. I'm your host, Pendarvis Harshaw. Here to inform you that we are here. We made it. The grand finale. The final act. The last episode in a four-part series on filmmaking in the Bay Area right now-ish. I have the esteemed honor of introducing today's guest, Miss Cheryl Dunye. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for having me. And it's, you know, Ashe and... Namaste to begin things, because we are all blessed. Blessed we are. Dunye checked in with us from the set, and she's been directing TV shows as of late. Episodes of big hits like Queen Sugar and Lovecraft Country. Before that, Dunye was recognized for numerous productions, including her films, Stranger Inside, The Potluck and the Passion, and the landmark movie, Watermelon Woman. Is Watermelon Woman her first name, her last name, or is it her whole name? I don't know, but girlfriend has it going on. Dunye, born in Liberia and raised in Philadelphia, has made Oakland her chosen home for the past decade. She's even named her production company after a neighborhood in the town. We're going to get into all of that and more in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, what's up? I'm Pendarvis Harshaw, the host of KQED's Right Nowish podcast. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 25 years ago, Cheryl Dunye debuted her seminal film, Watermelon Woman. The story follows Dunye's search for this beautiful woman that was depicted in Hollywood films and only credited as the Watermelon Woman. The film includes the main character, played by Dunye, talking to the camera about making the film. There are also scripted scenes and lots of documentary-style interviews. In the end, the audience reads a title card that says, Sometimes you have to create your own history. The Watermelon Woman is fiction. And it's important to note that with this movie, Cheryl Dunye birthed her own form of storytelling, Dunyamentary. It's been 25 years since one of your most notable films, The Watermelon Woman, and wondering just how you feel about that film being 25 years, 25 years into its success. You know, at the time when I made it back in 94, 95 and kind of conceiving it, I was living in New York 
between New York and Philadelphia, where I was raised. Um, and I had been um, doing a lot of work as an art curator and was on that path to make art. Ostensibly, the watermelon woman for me is, you know, a piece of art. It sort of lives in both worlds. So in this one film that came into the store, Plantation Memories, I saw the most beautiful black mammy. And I just had to show this, so watch. Something that was was sort of biting at me a lot as a uh, African-American lesbian and seeing all these new queer films coming out. Now it's been labeled as the queer new wave. Also that time period now labeled as the culture wars. So we're talking about like looking at culture, looking at representation and looking at intersectionality. It's about me. It's, it's about my community. I wanted to put people in the film that I saw in my world. Audre Lorde was alive around that time. So I was just doing my work, as Audre Lorde would say. Writing that creativity was not separate from our living, was not separate from what we had to do from our work, that this was an aspect of our work. It was an aspect of my work, both threatening and very, very satisfying. So here's the first African-American lesbian feature, because there was none. She said the first. There was none before that. Hey, this is only 25 years ago, y'all. People didn't catch on at the beginning. You know, it, it did win its accolades in Berlin, but it was really hard to find a distributor while I watched all the other queers who weren't African-American easily get deals and easily be able to make their next film and just at festivals and whatnot. It took a while for people to understand and accept and, you know, see all the, the what was what's in the film, which is a lot. We put everything in it. Financing, you know, magical financing, I think did the first Kickstarter where you look at the credits of the film, you see everybody's name. Because uh, I said, if you give me a dollar or anything, I'll put your name at the end of the film. So there's this list of all, all, you know, the whole community. It's only now in retrospect where people are like, oh my God, that's groundbreaking. Oh yeah, you know, it's not groundbreaking. It's not like a discovery. I was there, y'all just catching up. That makes me think of the end card from the film. You know, sometimes you have to create your own history. The Watermelon Woman is fiction, and it's like you created a way of telling the story of the world that you were living, like incorporating the people that you were in your life. And it's very evident, you know, the extras in the film, you know, are very lively. And it's like, oh no, who's that story? Can I ask you a question? Shoot. Can you tell me, do you know who the Watermelon Woman is? Yeah, she's the one who originated what we call Aunt Jemima, like on the syrup bottles. Isn't she the lady that wore the fruit cocktail on her head? No, that's Rosie Perez, Buka. Boy, that could have been her alias name. Oh, child, I don't think she so. She wore the fruit cocktail with the leaves oh, no, and the, no, you know, the, no, uh, you know. What's doing your mentory and how, like, how would you, how would you wish that they would teach it in classes? So the doing your mentory is, you know, d do your own mentory. If you are living in the margins and you're invisible, people see you when they want to and don't want you there, you can do anything. So marginality is my strength in that sense. It allowed me to have my own sense of visibility, help me create my own world, make my own cinema. So the Dunyamentary is basically putting myself in my own picture with my own truth using documentary elements. I was calling it like the theory of threes where you see me in uh, a talking head talking to you in sort of a talking head style. Like this. Can you believe it? Faye's a sapphic sister, a bulldagger, a lesbian, 
Oh my gosh, I knew something was up when I saw Plantation Memories. You, you see a vignette. Like this. What's this Royal Theater? The Royal, the Standard, the Dunbar, those were the places to be in the 20s and 30s. South Street was jumping with nightlife. Like South Street now. Hell no, girl. South Street sucks now. Write this down. Those were mm -hmm. Black-owned, Black-operated. And then you see text that says something or it's poetic or whatnot on the screen, the title card. We um can't show you that because this is an audio story. And if you didn't understand who I was or what I'm talking about at that point, then bye-bye, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like the breakdown. I really wanted to put the truth of what my life was like. I've always been out. I mean, I was never in the closet or anything. So I really wanted to have a life that was my life. Not coming out, lived, you know, a little bit damaged, functional, dreaming, stuck on traffic, you know, whatever I was doing, I just had to put those real elements that people don't really include in film, but it makes it much more authentic. I'll use a word from ball culture, it's realness. And um, this realness is text, um, it's texture, it's style, it's tone. You see people picking up on that style later on. I mean, I think many filmmakers have used the Junior Manuary way to create their own visibility because nobody, you know, wants to care about them so they could do what they want. The 40-year-old version, I think, that, that film sort of used that style in a good way. What do I gotta do? Write a slave musical, an all-white play? The realness and in intimacy, how, how did that um, influence or inform uh, the direction that you did for Lovecraft Country, um, Strange Case? When Misha tapped me, I magically said yes. Of course I was going to say yes, right? <laughs> I was like, well, no, I'm not going to do it. So I, I had just, you know, ran crazily to, to Lovecraft with all my visions. And I think Misha knew that she was going to get more than just what's on the page because I'm queer, I know cinema, uh, I know blackness. And in my first film, Janine, it talks about my relationships with a, a white young girl in, in high school and having a crush on her and desire, you know. She was blonde, blue eyes, she seemed so perfect and I just seemed so imperfect. I mean, she was the epitome of whiteness. Questioning whiteness and blackness and skin and, and stuff like that. So I brought all that. The episode she directed in Lovecraft Country follows the story of Ruby, a black woman who was given the ability to turn into a white woman. And the graphics and the storyline, oh, it's gut-churning. Scared the shit out of me to wake up white when I was stumbling down the street, crazed and disheveled and screaming at everybody around me. They weren't scared of me. They were scared for me. I just dipped into myself again, using my own stuff and putting that on top of some wonderful writing by Sonia and Jay Kidd. I don't know what is more difficult, being colored or being a woman. Most days I'm happy to be both, but the world keeps interrupting and I am sick of being interrupted. I love it. It's like this thread of you being a scholar, a scholar of yourself, a scholar of the art, um, 
a scholar of, of Philly. I've heard you talk about, you know, your where you've come from and your production company, Jingletown Films, obviously influenced by Oakland. I'm wondering, how has the history of Oakland, of Jingletown specifically, influenced you in your filmmaking? I was living in Jingletown, <laughs> which is a, a section of Oakland um, in the Fruitvale area. Uh, literally, like, I could see Fruitvale Station from my loft window. Jingletown was named Jingletown because there were workers there who, back in the day, you know, the early century of the early 20th century, when they got paid, they had money in their pocket and it would jingle. Um, and that's sort of where that came from. So I thought it was a wonderful way to label and name the company. And then lo and behold, people are on the street just running into Boots Riley, right? Running into Natalie Bazile, who wrote Queen Sugar the Book, and just running to a variety of other filmmakers and artists. Oakland is historically one of the most powerful Black places and woman space and queer spaces in, in the world. And, and to be at the epicenter of all that, and, and that was a choice for me to move to Oakland. Some people were lucky, magically able to, to you know, be from there, which I, I wasn't. I, I moved there uh, full time in about 2010. Because there's a choice. I was living in L.A. I was like, I'm done with L.A. I, I, this is where I want to be. I feel complete. I feel agency. And that's why the company's called Jingletown, because it's the possibility and agency that we must give ourselves. We must label ourselves. We want to make things in Oakland, not just about gay San Francisco. It's about blackness and liveliness and realness, not about the, you know, blackness of of Oakland being one of the, you know, scariest places to live in America because uh, of death on the street, or, or, or it is telling these stories the way we want to tell them, putting a spotlight on it to make some change happen. So possibility, black to the future, all of that is what Jingletown is about. Storytelling about the town, showing how nuanced it is, all from the perspective of a black queer artist who understands culture and context. I can get behind that. Not too long after recording this interview, my daughter and I made a short film. It was about her Barbies and their quest to go swimming in a bathtub. Our kitten naturally played the role of the bad guy, hating on the mission. It's a short but award-winning film. I promise it is. If you learn nothing else from this series of interviews, it should be extremely clear that there is power in telling your own story. Again, to Ms. Cheryl Dunye and to all the storytellers out there, thank you. The producer behind the show and the one who suggested we talk to Cheryl in the first place, Marisol Medina Cadena. Our editor, Jessica Plachik. Our engineer, Sil Muller. The engagement team, Jacqueline Carbajal, Lena Blanco, Kiana Mogadam, and Sarah Pineda. KQD execs are Eric Aguilar, David Marcus, and Holly Kernan. I'm your host, Pendarvis Harshaw. Thanks for listening. Go tell your story. Peace. Right Now is a KQED production. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.